the uh, French Revolution, because where else would we start? Um, France in the early 1700s was under a lot of pressure, exhausted by war. They'd been at war for years and years and years. Um, one of the greatest uh, segregations of wealth um, the country had ever known. The poor were uh, more separated from the rich than they had ever been. And the clergy, kind of the aristocracy and the clergy. French was um, almost entirely Catholic, and there was a huge separation between um, the common everyday person and the clergy, as well as the common everyday person and the wealthy. Um, and, uh, and there was a lot of resentment building up, and it was kind of a powder keg. Uh, and then they had a couple bad years of crops, just kind of a standard thing, and it erupted um, and fell into the French Revolution, almost 10 years of bloodshed. Um, and it was, uh, it was kind of stands out in history as maybe the death. A lot of historians consider the French Revolution to be the death of monarchy in Europe. Um, it changed the landscape of Euro European politics. Um, and you can look back now, because we can look back with hindsight, and we've got the benefit to look back at, at all these things that played in to this uh, very bloody time in history. And right across the little channel um, is England. Uh, and England um, had almost the same situation going into the 1700s. Um, great separation of wealth. Um, England was just as exhausted by war. Wars had kind of um, just drained both countries of all the resources. Um, and it sat almost as volatile uh, until about 1730. In the 1730s, a couple guys started traveling around preaching. George Whitfield, um, a guy named Samuel Davies, who was known for preaching to slaves. Uh, the Wesley brothers, Charles and uh, John Wesley, who um, would just travel and built up a ministry preaching to coal miners and just farmers and blue collar people. Um, started getting a following, and it was a big enough following that, that the rich and, uh, and aristocratic started noticing it, and they would get intrigued, and they would come and, and sit through these, uh, these sermons and, and listen to these preachers preach. And no matter what history I went to uh, this week, they all talked about the Great Awakening. They said it was a, they had a unique emphasis on confession. Um, confession had gotten lost in the church. Um, the, the Catholic Church had, had uh, isolated confession to the priest. Um, they had the power of absolution, and so people would confess to a priest to get their sins absolved. And when Luther and the other reformers came along, they um, extolled the priesthood of all believers. Um, so people stopped going to a priest for confession, but they had such a habit of that that uh, they believed in the priesthood of all believers, and that was, uh, for the most part, followed. But the habit of confession kind of fell away. Um, and so you can't really find much writing, you know, after the, the first reformers um, about confession. It kind of died out for a while, and it went through a revival here in the Great Awakening, and people started confessing their sins. And, and within a year or two, it was rich and poor alike were piling into these meetings and confessing their sins. And, uh, and the Great Awakening uh, really changed the landscape of the church. Most people consider it the birth of evangelicalism. Um, it, it changed the structure um, of church history completely. Uh, it flowed over into the colonies. It became part of the American story. Um, and a lot of, uh, a lot of the, the church was changed, but it also changed social, the social climate of Europe. Almost every big um, 
social change in that era, you can you can track the person behind it back to the Great Awakening. Wilberforce, you know, everybody, that was a big thing a couple years ago. The abolition of the English slave trade. He was directly influenced by the, the power of the Great Awakening. Um, the labor um, was completely redone. Um, uh, the labor environment got way safer for workers and, and stuff, and that came out of the Great Awakening. Uh, there was even... Um, the birth of the Society for the, Prevent for the Prevention of the Cruelty of Animals. Um, a bunch of people convicted in the Great Awakening came out and, and didn't like the way animals were being treated in England. They were actually breeding. I don't know if you guys, you guys know where the bulldog came from. You look at the breeding of the bulldogs. It was bred to fight bulls. Like they were these little, um, they would sick like 10 dogs on a bull to attack it and people would gamble on it. It was like cockfighting and dogfighting and, and the bulls were, uh, were good at getting under and getting their horns under the dogs and throwing them. And so they kept breeding them squattier and squattier so they could get underneath the bull and, and chew his legs apart. Like this was, this was England in the 1700s, 16 1700s. And, and the, the, the people in the Great Awakening um, saw this and didn't think this was biblical. And so, so they, they, like, out of the conviction that came out of this, they even started to care for animals in a different way. Um, so their whole cultural landscape was was changed. I read one history that said by 1790, this is just after the French Revolution exploded. 89 was when the French Revolution exploded. This guy said by 1790, um, England had given birth to its first legitimate middle class. There had never been a middle class in England before. And uh, something in the Great Awakening changed the landscape so much that by the end of the 1700s, so about 50 or 60 years after the Great Awakening started, England now has a middle class. Uh, historians call it the largest bloodless redistribution of wealth in human history. Um, that the wealth, and a big part of it was because the poor, um, or the rich were suddenly um, thinking about their wealth and thinking about what they did with it. And it was a voluntary redistribution into the economy. All of this from preaching. And the reason I bring this up is because our tonight's passage, our lectionary passage for the night, was one of the motivating passages, one of the real kind of backbone fundamental passages of the Great Awakening. And it seems a little strange, but we'll get to there by the end. So let's read this together. Um, you who were slaves, you who are slaves, sorry, must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. For God is pleased when conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Of course, you get no credit for being patient if you are beaten for doing wrong. But if you suffer for good, for doing good, and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He is our example, and you must follow his steps. He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judged fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds you are healed. Once you were like sheep who wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. Before we start, I kind of feel like I have to deal with, I guess, the elephant in the room. Um, the lectionary passage, because uh, I preach out of the revised uh, common lectionary, um, actually took out that first verse. It started on the second verse, like, because we don't like to talk about slavery. Um, uh, so it, uh, it started on the second, but I thought that was kind of unfair. Um, so I decided to go back. 
because this, this passage starts out talking about slaves, and this is an issue we have with the Bible. This is an issue a lot of people nowadays where they look at the Bible and they feel like it's too old-fashioned or too regressive, uh, maybe even oppressive. And they, they turn to verses like this about slavery, and they say, look, the Bible, you know, it, it allows slavery. You know, how can this book still be valid? You know, this is, this is, we've moved past this. So I thought I would start with three things to consider when the Bible offends you. These are three things. You can, these, are just, these are just things to consider. Um, when, when you read a passage, you get offended. Uh, three things I want you to think about. First, um, that this is a living word. The Bible says this is living, and, and, uh, and it's the word of a living God. And so I ask you to start by thinking of, is there another human being, a living human being, other than myself, of course, whom you agree with 100%? Anyone. No, none of us agree with anybody 100%. And so we would expect a living word, a living, the word of a living conscious God is going to offend us. It should. If you agreed with everything you read in the scripture, it would lose validity, wouldn't it? Like if you, if you read the scripture and never did you look at it and go, I don't know, I don't like that part. Then you would have to start to question if I'm really reading this the way, uh, the way I should. Am I really understanding a living being in this? So step number one, this is the easy one, is maybe it's supposed to offend. If you, have anybody ever seen the movie The Stepford Wives? Oh, you uncultured Philistines are killing all my metaphors. <laughs> it's a movie from like the 50s that they remade in like the 90s, and it was this perfect suburban area, and this new couple moves in, and, um, and they start to notice that all the wives in the neighborhood are perfect, and, and this guy's new wife is kind of feeling self-conscious, and, and the husbands are or being super nice to them, and their wives are all like they obey and they bring them drinks and everything's perfect. And and uh, and this new husband's like, I, you know, what's wrong with my wife? And it starts to, and as he gets in farther, it's kind of a science fiction, but you don't know that till you get in. But the husbands are slowly replacing their wives with robots that look just like them, and they're trying to talk him into basically bringing his wife down. And so it's uh, and so it's kind of a commentary on on consciousness, but uh, um, but they redid it and. And, uh, and the problem is, I think most of us, when we read the scripture, try to create a step for God. Like, we want to, we, we imagine God in an image, we, we tell him what we want him to say, and then we read the scripture, and he says it to us, and we're like, yeah, that's exactly what I expected. We programmed you to say exactly what I want you to say, you know, and, uh, and that's just no fun. <laughs> so, when you read the scripture, please expect it to offend you. Go in expecting that. Um, because it's a living word and it's going to. Second thing to consider is maybe the Bible offends you because you have cultural blinders. And, uh, and this is a big one. Um, if you take, uh, for instance, if you're, if you're an American and you're in the West and you imagine the scriptural text on sex um, and what the Bible has to say about sex, well, most people look at it and they're like, well, that's regressive and you know, we've moved past that and, and that, uh, that's not good for people and blah, blah, blah. And nobody lives that way anymore. Um, and then you bump into a verse on forgiveness, and you're like, oh, that's good, because psychology has said it's better to forgive people, and so we believe those, we like those passages, and those are good passages, and we talk about those, write them on t-shirts. What if you go to the East, what if you go to the Middle East, you know, and they read something about sex, they're like, oh, not bad, a little loose, maybe, you know, but that stuff on forgiveness, you can't live that way, like, you'd die if you live that way, we've moved past that, like, you can't, you can't, uh, the Bible's regressive, nobody forgives like that anymore, like, so your culture dictates how you read a scripture. You know, if you take something here, it's different than when you read it in the East. And you've got to take that in the scripture when you read it. And the third thing, and this is the big one, and it kind of goes along with the other ones, 
is that maybe the Bible doesn't say what you think it says. Um, one of the things that's always bothered me about the Old Testament is a lot of our Bible heroes had more than one wife. That always driven, drove me nuts. Polygamy is a big thing in the Bible, and I never knew what to do with it. And I would bring it up in debates, and we would argue about it. And, and uh, I think a lot of my friends early in my Christian walk thought I was a nutcase because uh, we'd have to ah, what about polygamy? Can I get another wife? Huh? huh? You know, but... Uh, um, and then I read a book um, by Robert Alsa called The Art of Biblical Narrative. And he brings out in that book that there's two... Um, two cultural norms in the ancient world that exist in every culture we have history of, polygamy and primogeniture. Uh, polygamy being a husband being allowed to have more than one wife, primogeniture meaning all of your stuff going to your firstborn son, all of your possessions and wealth going to your firstborn son. Every culture we know of from the ancient world had that. So if we read the Bible and it didn't have those, we would wonder if it's an authentic book from that era because every culture had it. And these ensured that we would have patriarchal societies because all the wealth automatically passed from one male to another male. So women couldn't advance at all because they couldn't gain wealth. And then a man could pick as many wives as he had and women became a commodity. And people read that in the scripture and they assume the scripture is reinforcing these principles. And if you take an imperative approach to scripture where you're looking for commands, you're looking for a list, you're looking for things you can check off, you might come with that conclusion. But if you take a narrative approach to scripture, and you look at the stories being told. If you look at the stories being told about polygamy in the Bible, all of our heroes, Abraham had two wives. And because of that, um, his two wives got in a fight, and he had to kick a son that he loved out of the camp. And sometimes we go with that all theological, and we're like, well, the promises were held in Isaac. But he raised a son that was his blood son and had to kick him out of the camp and throw him out to the wilderness because of his two wives not getting along. And then you've got... Jacob and, uh, and Leah and Rachel and they got so competitive they were like here take my maid you know maybe she'll give you kids because my wife my sister is getting ahead of me in this whole kid count thing have my maid you know and then they got to where they were buying a, one night with their husband from their other sister with their son's mandrakes like and competition that got so deep that one generation later you've got sons selling brothers into slavery um, all out of this tension that was built you get all the way down to David David had countless wives and there was so much separation in his harem that his oldest son Absalom um, didn't feel any familiar attachment to one of his wives and took her to be his concubine and it, and it led to an overthrow that meant David ran for his life and had to leave the kingdom because his, uh, his polygamy had grown to the point that, that a son doesn't even feel attached to one of his dad's wives because there's so many of them the Bible just comes right out and tells us that Solomon's wives are what led him away from the Lord so every story we have, every narrative story we have about polygamy is a bad story. And so you start to wonder, is the Bible really pushing this? If you watched a movie, and in that movie there's four characters and they all pay taxes and they have this really heavy tax load, and in every single story um, the tax load is causing some devastation in their life. At the end of the movie, would you say that movie's pro-taxes because every character paid taxes? You know, in that movie, you would say that's obviously a movie talking about how bad taxes are. Like, because every character paid them and it crushed every character. So when we read the scripture and we read about polygamy, if you read the narrative, you say, man, the Bible hates polygamy. Every story it tells about polygamy is devastating. When I read that, I was like, I was so relieved. I was like, that makes so much more sense. And then I thought, what if I had kicked out the scripture? 
what if I said, well, I'm, I don't believe in polygamy. This book is backwards and it's regressive and I'm done with it. Where would I be now? And so, maybe the Bible doesn't say what you think it says. I went into this passage with that approach um, and uh, I found a historian uh, where'd he go? Murray Harris. I read an excerpt from a book by Murray Harris who did a study on first century Greco-Roman um, culture and he had a chapter that I read on, um, on slavery in the Greco-Roman culture and this, this is kind of a list of, of what he said. He said, first, slaves were not distinguishable by race, speech, or clothing from any other citizen. Um, slaves were often more educated than their owners and held high managerial positions. From a financial standpoint, slaves received the same wages as free laborers and were therefore never considered to be poor. And many uh, would accrue wealth because they would get paid a normal wage and most of that would go to their contracted owner, but they would always receive some uh, back themselves. And most of them could save up enough to buy themselves out of slavery within 10 years. 10 years was typically considered the normal um, uh, length of slavery. Uh, most people were freed by, the, by their mid-30s. Um, so these are, this is a different system. Usually it was a debt. Usually you would either need to take out a debt or you would accrue a debt and not be able to pay it back. And so you would sign a contract with an owner. And that owner, I mean, it was oftentimes abusive. It was oftentimes like working for a bad boss who could abuse you, but you had no options to leave. So I'm not saying this was all roses, but, um, but it's nothing like New World slavery. New World slavery was always race-based. Um, the default mode was slavery for life. It was property, not contractual. Um, and it was always begun and resourced by um, kidnapping, which the Bible absolutely forbids in 1 Timothy 9-11. Uh, and every abolitionist movement um, in the West, anyway, was always spearheaded by Christians. Um, so by no means, as I get into this passage, do I want you to think the Bible is saying that slavery is okay. It is absolutely what we think of when the word slavery comes up. 17th, 18th, 19th century slavery is not okay. Never is it okay. So when you read this passage, never read in like American history slavery into this because that's definitely not the case. God is not telling those types of slaves to submit. So that was just a side note. That was for free. Um, so, uh, did I switch? Oh, my goodness, I forgot I had slides for that. There you go. In case you're following along, I clearly am not. Um, so let's talk about submission. Um, this passage, when we read it, it says, you were once slaves, you must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you. Uh, even if they are cruel, you patiently endure unjust treatment, even if it means suffering. Like, we don't like this language anymore. Like, we're such a, um, an abuse-sensitive culture that we, uh, we shy away from these passages. We shy away from this language. But unfortunately, the, the power of the Christian life lives here. Um, so some... some Rules about submission from the scripture. Number one, submission can never be taken. Um, you have to just get that into your vocabulary. Submission can never be taken. It can never be commanded. It can never be demanded. Submission can only be given. If you take it, it's subjection. That's a whole different word. Uh, if, you, if you force someone to be submissive, you're subjecting them to your power. Submission can never be taken. It can only be given. You can only give submission. 
if, if it's that way. So if you're in a position where you have no options but to submit, it's not submission. That's subjection. You're being subjected to evil, and that's not okay. Um, number two, submission uh, is the way of Jesus, what we call the path of descent. When we submit ourselves willingly, we're not only... Uh, free because we have other options, but we're actually taking a power position. Submission is actually a power position. And when we talk about this, Jesus saying, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, um, love those who hurt and despitefully use you. A lot of this talk about um, from Jesus kind of bothers us. And, and like our instinct is to say, well, yeah, but God didn't call us to be a doormat. We're not supposed to let people walk on us. And this is like our instinct. This is just kind of what comes up from underneath. Um, but there is absolutely no strength greater than having the ability um, to respond in violence or in, in rebellion and choosing of your own free will not to. Anybody you know who does that, um, we automatically um, like resonate with that kind of strength. That's what Jesus said. He said, don't you know I could call ten legions of angels? Like That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is submission. This is a whole different thing than you're even used to. Um, when we choose the path of descent, it's not weakness, it's strength. And it comes from the strength of our Savior. P Peter tells us in this next part what the path of descent looked like for Jesus. And I titled this um, HWJP, How Would Jesus Post? Things to consider before posting on Facebook. Uh, where to go? Did I not get the passage? Okay, I'll highlight it. Um, there it is. It says, He is our example. You must follow in His steps. He never sinned nor deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when insulted. Step number one on Facebook, don't respond. Um, nor threaten revenge or suffered. He left the case in the hands of God. Prayer is infinitely more powerful than Facebook posts. Uh who always judges fairly, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross. And this is a big one. Violence, the circle of violence, the circle of, of anger, the circle, it's perpetual. Um, when we look at violence, if someone, if someone commits a violent act, it almost, someone innocent is almost always hurt. Like if you came and beat me up, my son's going to be offended. And you didn't do anything to my son, but he's going to feel obligated to pay you back. And he's going to offend somebody on your side who didn't do anything to my son. But now he's offended, so he's going to feel obligated to come back. And there's no stopping this cycle. I mean, we see this in, we see this in the Middle East. One side bombs the other side. And they, they, they hit a target, but they also kill a bunch of innocents. Well, those people have every right to. They didn't do anything. They have every right to retaliate. When they retaliate, it's justified, except for the fact that they kill a bunch of innocents who now have the right to retaliate. They didn't do anything wrong, and so they retaliate, and there's no way out of this cycle until somebody absorbs it, until somebody just says, I'll take your violence and just hold it, and I will respond in love. I will just absorb your violence. This is the path of dissent. So why do we do this? And this is principial. It's not only pragmatic. I mean, it's, it's pragmatic, not only principial. It says, he is our example. Um, if you read down, I'll, I'll skip ahead a little bit. It says that he carried our sins in the body so that, 
so that there's a reason so that we can be dead to sin but alive to what is right that's resurrection by his wounds you are healed that's healing once you were sheep wandered away now you've turned to your shepherd that's community that's in, that's inclusion and these all come because he was willing to absorb it not responding in kind but willing to and all of this fruit comes from that descent In the French Revolution, neither side would descend. Neither side would see things from the other side. The aristocracy and the clergy um, held the public at at arm's length. But the public also um, refused to descend in submission, and they turned to bloodshed. Um, They stormed the castle. They stormed the Bastille. And uh, and ten years of, of bloodshed came from it. The Great Awakening, what you wound up with was the rich and the poor side by side confessing sins. And you look next to you and you see somebody so vastly different from you and they've got tears running down their face, you've got tears running down your face. And the poor are forced to contemplate revolution and and uh, and justice and submission and what does this look like? And the rich are forced to contemplate greed and 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 justice and equitability and and they're forced to think about that because when you look at the guy next to you you can't see anything different when you're both confessing when you've both descended see we have a tendency to think descent is one side coming down when the truth is descent is always both sides coming down I read an interview from a journalist who interviewed the madam of a uh, of a brothel that had shut down in the Great Awakening because all of her um, workers got saved and so she had nothing left to do and so he asked her what do you think led to this change and she said well first business sure fell off um, when the preachers came to town when the evangelists came to town she goes but second this is the first time my girls have been able to walk down the street and be treated with dignity see both sides were abusing them one side was abusing them for cheap thrills and the other side was abusing them by not treating them with human dignity and something in the Great Awakening brought both sides down. It made one side not want to abuse her anymore in one way, and it made the other side not want to abuse her anymore in a different way. It's like in marriage. Like, if you're asking questions about who's supposed to submit to whom, you're already off track. Like, you're already asking the wrong questions. Like, if, if you're wrestling with that concept and that question, you've missed it already. Like, something in... And I used to say this to guys when we would study um, Ephesians, and it would say, uh, you know, husbands love your wives, wives submit yourselves to your husbands. I would tell guys, get a sharpie and just draw, just cover over that, because it says wives. That's not written to you. Like that's that wasn't said to you. That wasn't your name is not on that letter. And I used to say, I used to say, what women? If your husband ever pulls his verses to you, say, stop reading my mail. That wasn't written to you. That's not yours. That says wives. You read the husband one. But if you start asking that question, you've missed it. Marriage is about like holding hands and jumping off the cliff of submission together and just trusting that if I give myself 100% to this person and they're giving themselves 100% to me, then we're both also receiving 100%. Like if I give myself to them and they give themselves to me, we're both receiving. That's submission. Submission is when we both take the path of descent together and we find ourselves at the cross. 
churches about this. And sometimes we get taken advantage of. It, it will happen. Sometimes you'll give of yourself and someone will take advantage of it. There'll be a jerk there. There always is. And somebody will do it. And when a jerk does take advantage of us, Peter kind of tells us why that doesn't matter. He says, but if you suffer for doing good and endure it patiently, God is pleased with you. That jerk was never your goal in the first place. It was God. You are not to please a jerk. When we take the path of descent and we, we find ourselves at the foot of the cross, that's always where we find ourselves. And you can usually know when you're there when you look next to you and you see a black guy or you see a Democrat or you see a Republican or you, or you see somebody who's richer than you, somebody who's poorer than you. You see a guy from the Middle East, somebody super educated, and nothing in you responds other than to go, yeah, me too. We're both here. This is where we, like, where else would we be? Like, there's no difference between you and me. Like, if that's not happening, then we still need to descend. If there's something that looks to the guy next to you and says, you know, oh, that guy, then we've got farther to go. And we continue to descend toward the cross. When that person next to you looks just like you, you're getting close. So as we come to our time of response, as we sing and as we gather around the table and as we give, all in response to God's word, I want to leave you with one last thought about the path of descent. The reason that understanding this idea is so important the reason we come back to it, this phrase, so often is because we can't walk the path of descent with an attempt to earn anything from God. If, if you're trading good behavior uh, for favor from God, you're trying to ascend. That's a path of ascent. Um, you're hoping to improve your status. You're trying to, to win a better standing. But when you're so overwhelmed by the work that Jesus has already done for you, the fact that there's nothing more you can do, the fact that you are already exalted by the love and grace of God, that you can literally climb no higher. And when you have nothing left to gain by living sacrificially for others, but you give yourself anyway, you're starting to understand biblical submission. Cross submission, Jesus submission, freely given, never taken submission. This is the path of descent. It's the path of a Christian because it was the path of our Savior who left heaven to descend into our mess all the way to the cross for us. So we descend to the cross to meet him.